0: Myanmar is in the middle of a bloody coup, where, as a recording, at least 50 people have been killed since it began in February. Pro-democracy activists are taking to the streets, protesting the military's attempt to reverse the victory of Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League of Democracy, or NLD. In this episode of B-Side, attorney Michael Henry Yusinko, a senior research fellow at the Ateneo Policy Center, speaks with Business World reporter Kyle Tiatienza and draws parallels between the mass demonstrations in Myanmar and our 1986 people power revolution.
1: Before we delve into the political aspects of this topic, can you give us a short background of who is Aung San Suu Kyi and why she has been the main target of the coup? She and other members of the local party National League for Democracy are still detained for various Trump charges including illegal possession of okie-tokies and violation of Myanmar's disaster law. Sir, what's the main reason why Ms. Suu Kyi and her party members are gaining so much support from the international community?
2: I don't think I can even add more to the reputation or what people know about Aung San Suu Kyi. You no, know? She's a very iconic person in our region. She's the daughter of Myanmar's independence hero. So what we know about her party is, the NLD, that they won the recent elections fair and square. I don't think even the foreign observers will say that there were widespread fraud in that election. In fact, many commentators, many scholars, many academics are now looking at Myanmar, uh, before this ever happened, as a country that's on its path to democracy. So everybody was taken by surprise with what happened in February 1. Well, not actually really surprised because uh, we all know from our perspective as Filipinos, the counterpoint when a country becomes democratic, what happens is the influence of the military diminishes. So when a country becomes more democratic, as we were in 86, right? The less influential, the less prominent our military became. And I suppose that is the reason why the military in Myanmar did what they did, because they were really coming into grips with the reality that Myanmar as a nation-state is becoming more and more democratic. And at the forefront of that is the NLD. And the proof of that is that they won the last elections fair and square, and they were ready to take up government in parliament, right? So the country was actually moving forward, right? It was just a matter of the military really coming into grips with the uh, possibility that they will become really just the defenders of the state rather than the controllers of the state.
1: President Rodrigo R. Duterte's spokesman, Harry L. Roque Jr., was quoted as saying that the situation in Myanmar is, and I quote, an internal matter we won't interfere with, end of quote. Should the Philippines, the oldest democracy in Southeast Asia, that join other countries in condemning the coup in Myanmar. How should the Philippines respond to the ongoing political crisis there? So from the perspective of government,
2: I think their first instinct to say that this was an internal matter was correct. No? But they should also not forget that all governments in our region have a responsibility to defend their people. Okay? Whether uh, we believe it or not, all ASEAN member states adhere to constitutional principles like democracy, rule of law, human rights. This is all on paper in the ASEAN Charter. So for ASEAN member states, we can all hold each other to account for all of our governments to defend the rights of their people. The government should never forget that. While I'm saying that their first instinct was correct to say that this was an internal matter, but obviously it's not as simple as that. The government really has to look beyond what is in the surface. And we're seeing that's unraveling now that this is really a movement coming from the people, right? That this is not just about two uh, opposing political factions. No, this is about the people of Myanmar not just the Burmese people, I might add, but the various ethnic groups in the country coming together and really asserting their right to self-determination, right? That they are a democratic nation and that they have chosen to be a democratic nation. And our government should be wary about that and not simply dismiss this as they did at the first instance, That's really something that's just an internal matter within Myanmar.
1: Since the coup made headlines, a number of countries have condemned the military takeover. The UN Secretary General said it was a serious blow to democratic reforms. The United States and the United Kingdom have responded with sanctions on military officials. And seven rich nations such as Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK and US also condemn the intimidation and repression of those opposing the military takeover. While democracies around the world have already spoken against the coup in Myanmar and have committed to restoring democracy in the crisis-laden country, the Philippines, Thailand and other neighboring countries in Southeast Asia have only given a tippin response to the newest erosion of democracy in the region. Will it matter, sir, if neighboring countries stand up against the erosion of democracy in Myanmar? How will this affect the country's international reputation? We have to realize that Myanmar is still a
2: young democracy. No? So when I talk about we, I'm talking about ASEAN countries. I cannot speak for uh, other Western countries like the U.S. or the U.K. or even Australia and other Western countries because they will be coming from a different perspective. When we talk about ASEAN countries like Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, and the Philippines, Let's be clear that we are not adversaries, right? And we are committed as a 10-member nation-state to the principles of ASEAN. And therefore, we will never be as aggressive as the U.S. or the U.K. would ever be when it comes to dealing within other member nation-states. We will always be calculated. We will always be tempered in our response And the reason for that is because that kind of way has worked for us. Imagine the ASEAN for 30 plus years in this region. We have never been at war at each other. (laughs) And considering that we have many border disputes and all those sorts of things, but we have never gone to war with each other. And the reason for that is of our commitment to always consensus building, always being Tempered with our responses. But having said that, Myanmar has not actually been an ideal member, so to speak, for ASEAN. Not just with this coup d'etat, but also with the Rohingya uh, issue uh, in the past. So for the senior members of ASEAN, they will always look at Myanmar as uh, sort of a troubled little sibling, right? And we should expect senior members like Thailand, Indonesia, to look at Myanmar with more of a guiding hand rather than a punitive approach. And that's because of the ASEAN way. We want to help Myanmar. We do not want them to denigrate further into chaos, into military rule. So as much as we can, without compromising our democratic principles, We'd like to bring them along the democratic path for as long as we can. And I think the foreign ministers of Indonesia and Thailand and Singapore are working towards that path. Now, it's unfortunate that our country, the Philippines, as you've said, that we are the oldest democracy in this region. It's just unfortunate that
1: we haven't played any stronger role in this uh, issue. Speaking of the efforts of uh, neighboring countries to stabilize the situation in Myanmar, Indonesia calls for Southeast Asia to hold Myanmar junta to re-election. This ASEAN discourse, however, was heavily criticized by Myanmar civil movements because what they want is the return of the country's status before the coup on February 1. Should the Philippines join this call? That's a very, very
2: tricky proposition. But our government... I think should look into what's happening to the Myanmar people themselves. I think our government should take the cue from the people. I don't think the Philippines could make any recommendations outside of what the Myanmar people want. I don't think we should presume to know what's best for them. right? I don't think our government should even take the position of knowing what's best for the Myanmar people. I know it's a safe answer. I know it's sort of a political answer. But, you know, the reality is we don't want other foreign nations to tell us what to do, right? In 1986, when we were fighting against Marcos, a lot of foreign countries were saying, this is what you should do. This is what you should not do. No, we wanted to do what we wanted to do. We wanted Marcos out. We wanted a new constitution. We wanted freedom. We wanted democracy. And I imagine the people of Myanmar are in the same position now, that they want democracy. In fact, they had that in the last elections. They elected the people they want to lead them. And this is uh, an unfortunate event in their history that they need to resolve on their own. It's not that I'm saying that we just leave them alone. Of course not. We have to sympathize with them. We have to support them. It's so fortunate that technology now allows us to do that. Now, in 2021, the world, including us here in the region, in ASEAN, we are in a position to support uh, whatever the people of Myanmar
1: want to do in their lives. The U.S. has already imposed sanctions on military generals involved in the coup. Myanmar's commander-in-chief is actually now barred from traveling to the U.S. and his assets were already frozen in that country. Reports also show that the European Union was considering sanctions that would target firms owned by the military leadership. The UN Special Rapporteur on Myanmar and other UN officials have also called for a global arms embargo on Myanmar. They have also been pushing for targeted sanctions, such as global travel bans and asset freezes, on the leadership of the military-owned conglomerates. Currently, Myanmar benefits from the European Union's generalized scheme of preferences which exempts Myanmar and other vulnerable nations from paying import duties. Speaking of sanctions, will this pressure Myanmar's military to release the arrested leaders and bring back the civilian government? Or will these moves only worsen the political scenario in the crisis-laden country? What do you think, sir? Should the international community exert more pressure? And will these moves prosper, given that the international community is also concerned about the welfare of Myanmar people?
2: I think it will really challenge the military in Myanmar. I think it will push them to the brink because they have business interests that have been uh, compromised now with the sanctions, no? That's what's peculiar about the situation in Myanmar. The military are not just dominant in the political spectrum, but they're also very well entrenched in the business side of the country, no? And therefore, the sanctions that have been imposed on the country have also hit them hard in the financial sense. Now, knowing human nature, it can potentially uh, make them more aggressive, make their grip over the country even harsher. If their interests are threatened, their reaction would be is to protect themselves. And in the process of doing that, they could potentially become more harsher. Now, I don't want that to happen, obviously. So there's still that potential of the uh, mass movement. The Myanmar people themselves are able to muster enough influence in the population for the military to relent and simply say that we cannot kill our own people. That's the realization that we want them to have, that it is not worth
1: killing innocents of their own people. So, sir, what lessons should we learn from the experience of Myanmar? I mean, Myanmar people were able to overcome the military dictatorship in the previous decades. And yet, we see them again facing another threat of military rule. And I think this is very familiar to us. Nagkaed sa natayo naon, nakapagpatagsikatay ng dictador. And yet, we have seen recently how fragile our democracy is.
2: What we don't see is this, no? In 2007, there were mass movements. And then there was uh, an election in 2010, and then there was another election recently, right? But in that period of time, I have to tell you that a lot of civil society groups in Myanmar were organized, and they were working at the grassroots level, really organizing communities, organizing ethnic groups, organizing students, organizing lawyers, educators, etc. So, what we're seeing now is just a result of that span of work. And I think that's the lesson that we should learn. That people power is not just about the mass movements or the rallies. No. People power is about organizing at the community level. And I know this. You know why? Because I have met many of those civil society uh, leaders. I have to tell you... um, Myanmar is seriously considering adopting the federal system. In the course of me studying federalism in Europe and in Switzerland, I have met many government officials from Myanmar, civil society uh, leaders from Myanmar, studying federalism. And they have told me that in that period, from 2007 to 2019, a lot of organization at the grassroots level, has happened. And it is actually from that organization where this democratic empowerment comes from. That is where democracy now is alive in Myanmar. So it's not just about the mass demonstrations that we're seeing. That's part of it, of course. But at the heart of it, kind, at the heart of this democratic movement in Myanmar, are grassroots communities talking about federalism, talking about unity and diversity, talking about sustainable development, all of these things at the grassroots level, people talking about it, really committing to it, right? Committing to the possibility of Myanmar becoming a democratic nation. So that's where I think we should learn from. Kasi tayo, maybe we have lost our way, right? We've become too complacent with our democracy. We have free speech, we have free assembly, but let's look at the quality of our public discourse. Let's look at the quality of how we talk about policy, of how we talk about politics. Do you think at the barangay level, we still talk about the problems that we encounter as a community, or do we just talk about the latest this and that and this and that? Let's look at them and let's try to refresh our own, should we reinvigorate our public discourse again and talk about really what matters to our democracy and really identify what's ailing our democracy.
1: Reports showed that the pandemic has been used by various leaders to suppress dissent and further advance their political agenda. We have seen it in China and in Hong Kong, where mass movements had been further curtailed and suppressed. Well, also in the Philippines, I need that say more. So, sir, uh, with a prolonged pandemic, do we expect more arrests and human rights violations? How should people's movements deal with these prospects? What are the ways to counter this? I don't think there is really a big threat,
2: authoritarianism. Although there are glimpses of authoritarianism, I think the biggest threat, Kyle, to our country are political dynasties, which equates to bad governance. I think that's the biggest threat. Now, when it comes to authoritarian regimes, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think uh, we will ever come to that point because we are so used to democracy. But it is really the quality of our democracy that's very troubling. And I think if we continue on this path on electing political dynasties to leadership positions like the presidency, to the Senate, and to the House, I think our democracy will further deteriorate. If we elect more and more uh, leaders who are more concerned about their self-interest, like talking about charter change instead of finding solutions to the COVID pandemic, then our country will suffer bad governance. We have a chance to change that by not voting for political dynasties in 2022, and by helping non-dynastic candidates run for office in 2022. We have that ability now, today, in 2021. For the question about prospects, I think you and I, and whoever is listening to us now, should realize that we can do something about it now by uh, saying to all those political dynasties, that they will not win in 2022 if they do not offer solutions to the problems that we are facing now. It's as practical as that. And I want it that way because Filipinos should adopt that kind of mindset No, that in 2022, it will be about problems and solutions.
1: With nearly 14 months left before the 2022 elections, should we begin our efforts as early as now to defend democracy and uh, reach out to the grassroots? What do you think, sir?
2: Yes, let's reach out to the grassroots. Let's reach out to everyone we can. This is not going to be about politics or politicking anymore. It shouldn't be. Uh, we are in a very dire situation. We must identify problems the problems that we are facing there are so many Kyle no so we have to prioritize and then find the right solutions so that's the formula that i'm trying to work on and then bring as many filipinos on board because the reality is we cannot rely on a single messiah right we've done that many times na umaasa tayo na this president will solve our problems, this uh, vice president, etc. It's always
1: going to be a collective effort. And that collective effort begins now. Sir, with the Philippines and Myanmar's rich history of resistance, what do you think is the main antidote to the rise of authoritarian regimes? Is it collective action? And how should we reimagine our democracy? It's the note There's already
2: a growing realization especially after COVID, that democracy, it was challenged early on, maybe two years ago. But ultimately, after the pandemic, democracy will still prevail. It is still the best model for good governance. That authoritarian rule, regardless of how you market authoritarian rule, whether it's nationalism or military discipline or whatever, ultimately, human beings would like to live under freedom, would like to live under the rule of law, would like to uh, respect the human rights of others. These are all inherent now in our lives, in the way our minds as human beings are programmed. So there is now a sort of reawakening that democracy is still the best path to good governance. Now, it's not going to be the same democracy as pre-2016. Obviously, A lot has happened. And in fact, there is now a process of reimagining democracy again as a deliberative project, as they say, determining what's good for the community, determining what's good for the state. Whatever happens to Myanmar, we all hope that uh, they restore democracy, that the military step back and really assume their role as defenders of the state, not the controllers of the state, and that the Myanmar people really take control of their destiny again, as they have been doing uh, in the past two decades.
0: And that concludes another episode of B-Side. Once again, you heard attorney Michael Henry Yusinko, a senior research fellow at the Ateneo Policy Center, speaking with Business World reporter Kyle T. Atienza about Myanmar and the fragility of democracy. People power is not just about rallies and mass demonstrations. It's also about elevating the quality of public discourse. The biggest threat to Philippine democracy, according to attorney Yusinko, is bad governance resulting from political dynasties. We have an election coming up. Make sure you're registered and that you vote in 2022. This episode was recorded remotely on February 26, 2021. This is Samuel Marcelo. Thanks for listening.